0: Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constan from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as the principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health, diabetes outcomes, and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. The opinions and recommendations in this podcast are those of the presenters and not those of Cardio and its sponsors, and are not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. I hope you enjoy today's podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Randy Wexler, I'm a professor of family medicine at The Ohio State University, primary care physician, and a site principal investigator for Cardio. Today I'm here with my colleague, Dr. Liz Beverly, which we appreciate her being here, and I'd like to ask Liz to go ahead and introduce herself.
2: Thank you so much, Randy. I'm happy to be here. Hi, I'm Liz Beverly. I'm an associate professor and co-director of the Diabetes Institute at Ohio University and a site principal investigator for cardio. My research in behavioral diabetes focuses on the linkages between psychosocial issues, self-care, and health outcomes.
1: Thank you, Liz. Today, we're going to go ahead and discuss diabetes distress and its significance to clinical outcomes in patient self-care. The purpose of this podcast is to provide you with information on differentiating diabetes distress from other psychosocial issues and the use of screening tools to identify diabetes distress, as well as evidence-based strategies to help patients better manage this condition when they're not in the office and they're at home. We're starting to hear a lot more, not only in the literature, but uh, in the news and other social media outlets about diabetes distress in research and clinical practice And it's a condition we see in our patients who have diabetes. Liz, can you go ahead and, uh, for the audience, tell us what this is?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. So diabetes distress is not a new phenomenon. It's actually been talked about in behavioral diabetes for more than three decades. So in basic terms, diabetes distress, which occurs in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, it refers to the fears, the concerns, the worries that people with diabetes experience on a day-to-day basis. So, for example, someone might have fears about developing complications, they might worry about the cost of insulin, and have concerns about their family not supporting them in their diabetes management. So these are the concerns that can cause diabetes distress. And so it's really important to learn about diabetes distress because it's actually the most common psychosocial issue in diabetes.
1: So when talking to patients or talking to other providers, does that mean we should think of this as a mental illness?
2: Randy, that's an excellent question. So no, diabetes distress is not a mental illness. In fact, diabetes distress is a construct proposed by researchers who really want to describe the emotional experience to living with diabetes, which is a chronic progressive condition. So Randy, I have a question for you. How often are you seeing this in practice?
1: I would say almost all of my patients who are diagnosed with diabetes have apprehension of some type at the time of their diagnosis. And though the uneasiness should not be considered synonymous with diabetes stress, at least not right away, these are separate but related concerns. It is important to understand the patient's perception of diabetes because you can help to allay a patient's fears, especially when the diagnosis is new. For example, when I first talked to a patient about diabetes, many of them presume that at the time of their diagnosis, they will have to immediately begin insulin and inject themselves, but will eventually need an amputation. And these fears are driven by their past experience of diabetes with family and friends, and sometimes you might even see that on TV. So it's helpful to note that those with type 2 diabetes can often reverse what's going on physiologically and sometimes remit with medication and weight loss. So it's important to give patients the ability to understand that there's no preconceived outcome and they can actually reverse this some. Liz, I'd really like to know more about what you're seeing in the academic research you already described a little bit about.
2: Great. I love what you said there and talking to your patients and sharing that you can reverse some of these things. So what we do is we see a lot of this in the academic research too. So all people with diabetes experience some degree of diabetes distress. So it can be very mild or it can be severe. And this can occur at any time throughout the course of their illness. So for some with diabetes distress, it might be very low levels and it won't interfere with their ability to manage their diabetes or it won't affect their quality of life. On the other hand, there are going to be some people who experience severe or really high levels of distress and that negatively impacts their diabetes self-care behaviors and their quality of life. So in fact, in the research world, there have been two recent meta-analyses that show that approximately 22% up to 36% of people with diabetes report really high levels of diabetes distress. And this research also shows that individuals who identify as women and those who tend to be younger report higher levels of diabetes distress. And so this is just really interesting. And why do we need to care about this? The reason we need to care about this is not only because it's the most common psychosocial issue, but high levels of diabetes distress are also associated with fewer self-care behaviors, higher hemoglobin A1c levels, increased complications, and lower quality of life. So another thing to consider And I'm very curious what you have to say about this, Randy, is an important consideration is high levels of diabetes stress can actually rise to the level of generalized anxiety disorder. So we know adults with diabetes have a 20% increased prevalence of anxiety disorders compared to the general public. And the most common anxiety disorder for people with diabetes is generalized anxiety disorder. So it's important to note that anxiety symptoms and diabetes stress can actually overlap. And this is why it's so important to screen people for diabetes distress. So as I mentioned before, at times, diabetes distress does rise to the level of generalized anxiety disorder. But the major difference between the two is where the symptoms are coming from. So again, as I mentioned earlier, diabetes distress is focused solely on the symptoms that come from the experience of living with and coping with diabetes. What differs is with generalized anxiety disorder, it extends beyond their diabetes. It includes excessive worries about other things like work and finances and their safety. So if anxiety is coming from the diabetes, then you can focus that treatment specifically on the diabetes diagnosis. If the anxiety extends beyond the diabetes, and it's more like the generalized anxiety disorder, then the treatment can be focused on behavioral health as well as incorporating medications. So my question for you, Randy, is do you find that many of your patients who have diabetes distress also have anxiety? And then how do you change your approach if they also have both of these conditions?
1: Thanks, Liz. That's, a, that's an interesting question, and one that sometimes gets missed with some of the nuances, which is nice that you've explained that. And that's that patients can have both general anxiety disorder, non-diabetes related, as well as diabetes distress. Now, the treatment for generalized anxiety disorder can help with moderating diabetes distress but does not necessarily address the concerns which are the driving force behind the diabetes distress. So it's really important to recognize the pharmacotherapy and counseling for general anxiety disorder differs from that in the approach to diabetes distress. The BEST approach, and those of us in primary care are familiar with this, employs a multidisciplinary team. So diabetes distress can be caused by fear of self-management. So we have as part of our team, social workers, clinical pharmacists, registered dietitians and others to help the patient better understand how to manage this themselves, which is very helpful. I also previously mentioned complication fears, so it's important that patients understand that good control of their diabetes disease processes can prevent or ameliorate such complications. Many of the newer medications, and if insulin is needed, are really very expensive, so patients may have a lot of distress related to their ability to afford their medications, and then if not, what happens to them if they can't? So it can be helpful to discuss with patients generic options for many of the medications that do exist and how many pharmaceutical companies do offer help for patients if they meet specific financial criteria. A big stressor is also the reaction of family and friends. So there can be a lack of support or sabotaging, whether it's intentional or not, can be really a significant issue. Patients will often hear things like, come on, you can have a piece of birthday cake just this once especially in our society when food is kind of the center point of our gatherings and our get-togethers. There can be a lot of pressure with that, not to mention the family member might take a front that somebody does not want to eat something that they prepared for them, which adds additional stress. So all of this can be really overwhelming. So working with patients to establish small but achievable goals, you know, perhaps walking three times a week or eating dessert once a week and not every night, can provide success and, and a learned behavior and build confidence that's beneficial. Liz, you know, we talked about distinguishing between general anxiety disorder and diabetes distress. So are there validated screening tools that can be used actually to determine diabetes distress and to what degree it might exist?
2: Yes, that's a great question. And the answer is we do have a handful of really great measures for screening for diabetes distress. So I'm going to talk about the different measures that are out there. So the first measure that was written, and this was written about 30 years ago, is called the problem areas in diabetes. And it's a 20 item measure that does assess the feelings that we've been talking about. So feelings related to diabetes that include maybe frustration and anger and worry. And what's really great is we've also validated a survey using the problem areas in diabetes, but we're using only five of the 20 questions from the original. And this is great. So if you need to screen in your office, but you don't want to give the full 20-item measure, you can use the five-item measure. And the great thing about that is it has a 95% sensitivity, and it's 89% specific. And so for those of you who don't know, that means that 95% of the people who have diabetes distress will screen positive if you give them the five-item measure, and 89% of the people without distress will screen negative. So it's really great to have these short items. And there's also the problem areas in diabetes one-item questionnaire And this one has a 75% sensitivity and an 86% specificity for identifying diabetes distress. So that's the first measure that came out. The second measure for looking at diabetes distress is actually called the diabetes distress scale. And so this one is mainly for people with type 2 for screening. And this measure is 17 items. And it actually looks at distress in four domains. So it assesses emotional burden. It looks at physician-related distress regimen-related distress, and interpersonal distress. And like the other version with the problem areas in diabetes, there is a short validated measure for the diabetes distress too. And this one is also 95% sensitive and 85% specific. And then you might be thinking, well, okay, it sounds like you're talking about a lot of measures for distress for type 2 diabetes. There is a measure that is just for people with type 1, and that's called the type 1 diabetes distress scale. Now, this measure is a little bit longer, so it has 28 items but it's important because there are things that are unique to living with type 1 diabetes that are different than type 2 diabetes. So the type 1 diabetes distress scale actually has more domains that you can look at. So that includes powerlessness, negative social perceptions, physician distress, family and friend distress, hypoglycemia distress, management distress, and eating distress. These are some of the great measures that are out there.
1: Thanks, Liz. So Can you provide us some thoughts and recommendations on how to initiate a discussion with a patient so they don't feel like you're accusing them or putting thoughts in their head with respect to they might have diabetes distress?
2: Sure. So I do a lot of interviewing with people with diabetes. So when I talk to them, I ask them questions about how would you like a provider to ask questions about how you're doing and talking about your emotional well-being. And so a lot of things is they just want the provider to ask them questions about how they're doing. How are you feeling or what areas your diabetes are causing stress for you? So just opening a conversation that's open-ended and just asking, how are you or what's causing you stress? Providers can also acknowledge that managing diabetes is really hard and just normalize the idea that diabetes distress is common. It can occur at any time, and it's especially common when there's a major life event or change in someone's self-management plan or at the onset of a complication.
1: Thanks, Liz. That's really helpful. Can you give us some examples of some evidence-based interventions or strategies to help these patients if they are having diabetes distress?
2: Sure. So the first-line therapy for people with high distress is actually diabetes self-management education and support. And the emphasis on that is really on coping and the social support with diabetes management. So there's a lot of research that backs this up that shows that for people with high distress, providing diabetes education It also includes the coping strategies and problem solving that it can address a lot of the sources of frustration and self-care. So the frustrations they might have with following a healthy diet or finding time to do physical activity, the worries that they have about developing complications, the diabetes self-management can actually really help them. Also something that's been found in the literature, and this is somewhat emerging in the literature, is lay-led diabetes self-management education. So support from peers and community health workers has actually been shown to lower distress in people with diabetes. So that's really exciting. Now, for a person who has diabetes distress and you do recommend diabetes self-management education and support, and after three months you haven't seen an improvement, the next step then is to recommend behavioral health. So ideally, if you do recommend diabetes self management support and education, but you don't see that improvement, after three months, then that's really time to think about doing a referral to behavioral health. And then at that point, that's when you look at the provider's clinical experience and then really talk to the patient to see what the preferences that they might have. Because there's a lot of literature that does show when you do refer to behavioral health, there are some very specific techniques that are evidence-based, such as problem-solving therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing, and emotional regulation that have been very successful.
1: Thanks, Liz. Can you also help us understand the impact or the role social determinants of health plays with diabetes distress?
2: Sure. Well, we know social determinants of health are the factors that we were born in and live. And we know that social determinants of health have a real impact not only on someone's diabetes and their health outcomes, but also on their mental and emotional well-being. So there are lots of social determinants of health in the state of Ohio. And there are a lot of things that people experience, whether it's discrimination social exclusion, adverse early life experiences, their education level, perhaps unemployment, underemployment, poverty, income inequality, neighborhood deprivation, etc. So all of these things are associated with stress. And we know that stress negatively affects one's health. In turn, it affects the health behaviors, which can affect someone's disease progression, which also affects their mental health. Now, there hasn't been a ton of research out there that's looked at social determinants of health and diabetes distress, but there has some. And it shows that the more social determinants of health, there is an increase in diabetes distress. But we would expect to see very similar patterns because it's been really well studied with depression and anxiety. So we'd expect the same thing, that the more social determinants of health, the higher the rates of diabetes distress. So I have a question for you, Randy. So how can you continue to provide support for patients experiencing diabetes stress and to continue them on the path for thriving?
1: I think one of the more important things is frequent follow-up. Patients need to understand that you're there to help them and watch them and kind of keep them on board. And it's also important to celebrate the small victories. So for example, if an A1C drops from 8.1 to 7.9, this can be used to help keep patients motivated. It's important that they understand that they don't have to make improvements by leaps and bounds. It's a journey and it's a trajectory. And an improving trajectory is also important. It's also important to make sure they're aware of other options that help them in their support for diabetes, such as those we mentioned before, dieticians, clinical pharmacists, social workers, et cetera. And my patients also tend to respond well to anecdotes. I think many people respond well to anecdotes. It's, it's more believable. It's shareable. People understand them. So I share with my patients examples of patients who've lost enough weight, changed their diet, started to exercise, and they go off all of their medications. And I have a friend who was able to do this by making small changes that we don't typically think about. And this was making a change at lunch. And a lot of people order out, but she didn't do that. She started packing her lunch. And then instead of ordering out and sitting around and eating that, she started listening to books on tape and walking during her lunch break so she wasn't surfing the Internet or doing other things. So for those who don't really get a break, a walk for five minutes before a meeting, three minutes after, it's important. People need to know they don't have to put 60 minutes together, go get sweaty, go change, go shower before going on to something else, because activity we now know is cumulative. And so a little bit here and a little bit there over the course of the day really matters and can add up.
2: That's great, Randy. I agree with everything you said about sharing the anecdotes. I think they can be very powerful and leave a great impression. So I just wanted to reiterate that when you are meeting with people and setting smart goals as well as, you know, celebrating small victories, just remember to do the routine screening for diabetes distress. We've shared the tools that are very effective, and I just encourage people to do it because routine screening will identify people with moderate and high diabetes distress, which will in turn increase the number of people who are able to get treatment for their high distress. And there was a recent systematic review and meta-analysis by Schmidt and colleagues that showed that there are enough behavioral diabetes behavioral interventions out there, like the ones I mentioned before, with motivational interviewing and mindful-based cognitive therapy that can reduce levels of diabetes distress and improve A1C levels in people who have high levels of distress.
1: Thanks, Liz. So one of the things I hear a lot of my primary care colleagues discussing is the importance of doing certain things, but sometimes they can't because the the time to do so really, it needs to be a billable type of thing. Are there any type of associated billable codes that you can let people know about so that they understand that not only is this important, but the time to do it is also reimbursable?
2: Randy, that's such a great question. If you remember when we first started talking, I said that diabetes distress was not a psychiatric condition. So you're not going to find diabetes distress in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5. So because of that, there's no corresponding ICD-10 code. So the best fit for diabetes distress really seems to be adjustment disorder. It's a well-accepted term, and it conveys the same meaning to professionals from mental health sciences as well as diabetology. It can minimize a lot of confusion. So I recommend using adjustment disorders.
1: Thanks, Liz. That's really helpful. It's it's very interesting to know and understand that diabetes distress is the most common psychosocial issue among people with diabetes. And since primary care really manages 90% of the clinical care of such patients, especially with type 2 diabetes, primary care providers really need to understand the frequency and seriousness of diabetes distress. We're coming to an end of our time, but some of the takeaways from today, at least for me, are that we have effective screening tools that can help us identify distress during a medical visit and distinguish it from other conditions such as depression and generalized anxiety. And that people with moderate to high distress should be referred to diabetes self-management education and support, part of that team-based care we talked about. And if a person does not show improvements after participating in diabetes self-management for a period of time, or in general, as we discussed, three months, it's really important for us to consider a referral to behavioral health care. Liz, I wanted to thank you today for participating in this with us. I think we covered a lot of very important and interesting ground regarding diabetes distress, and I think it'll be very helpful for our, our primary care colleagues.
2: Thank you so much for having me and talking about this important topic with me.
1: Thank you, and uh, also to our listeners and for tuning in to Cardio Radio.
0: This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.